0: This is David Wilson and welcome along to episode 68 of On Another Track. We didn't realise at first we were both Brits, uh, probably. I don't know if you realised straight off the bat.
1: (laughs) I think I did. I think I did. I think I stalked you a little bit on LinkedIn and it was (laughs) apparent through that.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love the stalking on LinkedIn because you can do it without guilt, can't you?
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's all professional (laughs) research.
0: (laughs) That's the voice this week of my guest, Sophie Ash. She is the owner of Prospology, and she's going to help you break into the medical communications industry. Welcome along to my podcast series, On Another Track. We're here to explore people and places from around the world. We hear the stories that have transformed my guest's journey and help them get on another track. It's not always pretty, but if you need that practical advice to figure out the roadblocks ahead... Then you can't go wrong by learning from other people's mistakes. It's an enlightening experience and a great journey. Do you ever get that feeling when you see somebody's photograph that you've seen them somewhere before, or you happen to know them because they look so familiar? Well, that was my experience with Sophie Ash. I saw her photograph on LinkedIn and she posted one from about four years ago when she was at the lowest ebb in her life. No job, no prospects, no partner, No house. In fact, she had absolutely nothing, and she ended up taking a very low-paid job just to make ends meet. But guess what? She transformed her life in less than four years to become a very successful freelance medical writer, and now a coach. Listen as she takes us on the journey of how she created more freedom for herself, flexibility, and financial independence in this medical writing world. My first question for Sophie was, where is she in her business right now? And really, how does she help people break into the medical writing industry?
1: Where I am right now is I'm a business coach for people who are transitioning out of healthcare or scientific research. And they want to get into medical communications, but specifically they want to start their own business. They want to build a writing business, um, figure out their brand, what clients they want, learning how to niche down and and really monetize the skill sets that they've been building over the the past however many years. Um, A lot of people don't realize that there is a broad application to a medical education and all the clinical skills that we have. So it's really fulfilling to help people just start a life that has more freedom and flexibility and is on their own terms. And that's
0: a great thing you just said there, more freedom and flexibility. Was that the biggest bonus that you got from really transitioning from what I would call traditional job to work that you could control? Is that is that one of the big bonuses? And what other ones are there?
1: Yes, I would say that's definitely the number one thing that I personally got through transitioning out of clinical practice into medical writing, um, primarily because you get to set your own schedule and you get to decide which projects you take and which way you like to work and how much you charge and who you interact with and when your working schedule actually is. Um, I just got back from a swim um, in the middle of the day and it just makes me feel rejuvenated and ready to get to work. And that's not something I could
0: have done before. I love that. You you so anticipate my next question because it was so <laughs> funny because we're such LinkedIn people. I, I just had a quick look at your LinkedIn profile and I thought, oh I just see what Sophie's up to. And it was wonderful because you it was the sort of self-love thing. You know, self-love has never come easy for you. And 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 it was so funny because You said listen to both voices. What what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so I've done a lot of self-reflection and work with coaches over the years. And one of the things I've learned to do is to listen to the child voice that's still in me who is always nagging me for things and saying like, I want to have fun and I want to just not do anything today or I want to go out exploring. And for the longest time, the adult voice in me was saying just be responsible, just show up, do what you're supposed to do, and you can't spend too much time having fun or taking care of yourself because that's not the way, and that was kind of ingrained into me from the way that I was brought up and having very controlling parents who were always pushing me and didn't really advocate for downtime or just having fun, so I've learned to kind of tap into that child voice in there and kind of see what she needs because you know, if you're not careful when you're a very driven person, you can end up just pushing and pushing and pushing and and burning out and, and you know, not enjoying the, the flexibility and the freedom that you have.
0: You know, you summed that up so well because I know just before we came on air, I was explaining I just got out of hospital after eight days and I very much was in that mould. I, I don't mind admitting that on air that um, I was really push, push, push. I had four different jobs going. I really just wasn't doing downtime for David. And suddenly my body just decided, okay, that we're going to give you some downtime. And it was quite dramatic, I have to admit. And so do you think as a sense of, and I'm going to talk about our culture because we're both British. Is there a sense of guilt in our culture about having downtime and doing nothing and kicking your shoes off and reading a book and sipping a glass of wine in the middle of the day? Is that something that we have to contend with, do you think, as Brits?
1: you know it's hard to say because I've only really seen the direct influences from my parents and my family members and I know certainly from my mom she was an entrepreneur and she was working non-stop evenings weekends all the time even when she was sick and she would never say no to new work coming in my dad worked long shifts sometimes night shifts um, he wouldn't get much sleep and then he'd have things to do around the house and it was just kind of drilled into me that you must always be doing. And I never really knew anyone who had a more relaxed or slower pace of life. And so that is really what I absorbed. And that became normal for me. Um, It's only in my adult years that I have started to make friends or, connections with people who do have a more relaxed life. And it's still kind of strange to me to see that because I I didn't grow up with that and maybe it was there and I didn't see it or maybe it wasn't there. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a really honest answer. I love that. We'll talk about family in a little while because there's a very interesting backstory there, which I'd love to get to know about. But I want to just focus on how to get to that sort of fork in the road, that Y junction of where you do have a choice of, work, 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 or relaxation and doing something different for you. So how do you start that process of self-love off? I mean, what for, for somebody a bit like myself, entrepreneur, really back against the wall, the four walls are coming in and you know you're going to make some money because you need cash flow. What would be the first thing you would suggest just to give you that pause, that breath?
1: Mm, that's a great question. Um, for me, I think it was really about the way I saw myself if I saw myself as a human being, or if I saw myself as someone who could produce things or get things done. And for the longest time, that was the way I saw myself. And I would have a really hard time with other people coming to me and saying that you look like you need a break or you could use a vacation or um, they would be concerned. And I would find that strange because I was so used to always pushing and always feeling like I could do more. I could do more, even if my body was saying, no, you can't. And so it really took a lot of questioning and, and reflection on who, who am I and who do I want to be and what feels right to me. I think a lot of times when you grow up in situations where you didn't really have the support or the love that you needed, you look for someone to rescue you. And I think for the longest time, I was seeking that out. Someone's going to come along and tell me that I don't need to do as much anymore. Someone will give me permission to take a break or to stop or to rest or to stop pushing. And it and it really never came because I, I wouldn't have allowed myself to do that anyway. And I think it was that realization that actually I'm parenting myself now and I get to give myself permission to slow down and that can be okay. And so it's sort of questioning, like, how, how do I want to treat myself? And what do I want to feel on a daily basis? And looking at it through that lens, it makes it easier to have compassion for yourself and to treat yourself like a human being.
0: And I love that statement. I get to parent myself now, you know, it's that amazing shift of responsibility, isn't it? To you. And you think, Oh, I can make the decision and I don't have to feel guilty about it because I'm not beholding to anybody. And that's wonderful. It's such a release. Tell me about the little steps that you did though in the first early days in practical terms, what did that really mean?
1: Yeah. So I, I worked with one business coach in particular, and I, I signed up with her because she's an expert in sales. And I thought, Yes, I need to make sales. This is always going to be a valuable skill set to have. But when I actually started working with her, her process was very different to anyone I'd worked with before. And it was much more about self love and self compassion and accepting all the pieces of ourselves. And and letting out all of the pain and the trauma and things that we'd held in for so long and just getting them out there and learning how to be okay with our story and, and what we've been through and how we got to where we are now. And it was a very strange process of kind of telling her what I went through and like really just getting it out of my system and, and, and her listening to me every single thing, she would just listen to me and she would kind of repeat it back to me and, and it was very cathartic and it was very, um, it was the first time I'd really acknowledged what I had been through and that it wasn't fair on me to have experienced that. And it was also the first time that anyone had ever listened to everything that I was ashamed of and, and, and worried about expressing and accepting me anyway. And so I really think that was a turning point for me to start thinking, well, what if I don't have to be ashamed of the things that I've been through? What if they make me stronger and and better at my job and, you know, a better person in general? And what if I can use that in a positive way to move forward instead of always feeling like I have to hide pieces of myself? So I would really say that her influence was very significant to me. Um, And the other thing was that she had struggled with work addiction in the past. And that was something that I was really struggling with back then. And I didn't really realize that that's what it was until I heard about her personal story and how it was a compulsion and how she couldn't really stop. And she felt so guilty if she wasn't working. And I just resonated with everything that she said. And I realized this is an actual problem that needs to be addressed. And when I realized that it was a problem, it was something that I could do something about, so I think it kind of sparked from from being heard and being challenged on why are you the way that you are?
0: And she was really a catalyst, wasn't she? She really kind of changed that direction which you needed at that point. Now, I don't know how comfortable you are. And I mean, I, I, again, I'll accept the direction from you. How deep do you want to go in terms of, you know, that shame and responsibility and guilt? I mean, what did it mean in practical terms? Are you able to sort of discuss a little bit about the background of where you came from and you don't have to go in great detail, but it really just will resonate with some people. I know for sure. What did that look like? And how did that manifest itself and then eventually come to you as an adult?
1: Yeah, there were a lot of things. Um, I think one of the big things is being afraid to express myself because I grew up in an environment that was very traumatic and very um, physically and emotionally abusive. And if I said anything, I would be targeted. So I learned very quickly to just stay quiet and to keep my head down and not cause any disruption that might lead me to get caught in the crossfires. So one of the things that I really struggle with as I entered into Business and adulthood in general was to express my feelings about things and express my opinions about things because I was so worried that people wouldn't accept me or wouldn't um, accept that I had a different opinion to them and that they would somehow attack me or really bad things would happen. And it was a very irrational fear, but it was based on that kind of environment of walking on eggshells all the time and not knowing is this going to rub someone the wrong way are they going to attack me for for what i'm expressing and so i think that was a a big one for me but also in general like when you hear negative messages about you all the time that you're not good enough or that people don't like you or that you're not going to succeed um i heard those a lot and when you're an adult and you're living your own life and you're not even interacting with those people anymore necessarily you're still telling yourself those things and I would always be telling myself that I'm not good enough that I should do better that no one will love me no one will accept me and I I pushed myself really hard because of those things and um, kind of again like learning to see myself as a human who had emotions and it was okay to have emotions has been a real challenge. And I think it's still something that I, I, I'm working on now. I think I'll always be working on it, but really that confidence and self-esteem was extremely low. And that has been the biggest thing for me to, to work on in myself.
0: Um. Okay. So let's, let's move this forward. So you, you managed to get the catalyst that sprung the latch on the trap. You broke free. You managed to get the confidence to express yourself and, really tackle some of the kind of bogeymen in the cupboard, if that's the right expression. And you then move to next stage. You always see them as bases around a rounder's field or a baseball field, you know. Mm. Um, how did you get to second base in terms of, right, okay, Sophie's managed to grapple with the realities of the situation in her life. What was the next stage to build on? What's the foundation that allowed you to now project you?
1: Hmm. I think for me, um, having some kind of financial independence was a really important next step. I had always been in very codependent relationships. Um, I had kind of attached myself to men who would provide comfort and financial support and stability and safety and I didn't feel like I could kind of go out on my own and and succeed in anything really um, without some kind of a safety net there, um, especially financially. And so um, I had a period of time where I was not in a relationship and we were heading into the COVID pandemic and suddenly I couldn't interact with people much anymore. Um, I used to be an extreme extrovert and I was constantly meeting people and doing things. And I realized that I was neglecting myself. I wasn't allowing myself to feel or think or have my own opinions on things. And when I started to spend money on the things that I felt I should spend money on, things for me, um, like self-care things or business things or just things in my environment that made me feel good, that was another a big turning point because suddenly I didn't have to go to anyone for permission. And it was me, it was just I got to make those decisions. And that was not something I had experienced until pretty recently. Um and so um yeah I think it was just recognizing that I'm responsible for me and I know what's best for me and kind of building that trust with myself to get to a point where I know that I can handle anything that comes my way.
0: So here's a really interesting question because I've experienced those things, you know, there's sort a little of build-up of confidence. Then you get a chance to be financially sort of stable and then you then start to spend little things on yourself. Did you enjoy it? Could you enjoy it? Because you'd been so framed in that original framework. How did you start to enjoy it and enjoy the experience that you could provide for yourself? How did you do that?
1: Hmm. You know, I think it was very driven by my personal brand and what I'm helping my students achieve. Um, When I see people who need support in an area of their life and they're struggling, I really step up. That's just the kind of person that I am. So when I was starting to help people transition out of um, a nine to five or a, a full-time role that they weren't happy in, where they were burning out and they didn't have the time for the self-care or they didn't have the flexibility to do what they needed to do like take a, a shopping spree in the middle of the week like I sometimes do um I kind of felt this sense of responsibility like if I'm not emulating what's possible for them then how can they believe that is possible you know so I kind of walk the walk and talk the talk in the sense that I show them what's possible. And my job as a coach is to be a visionary in that sense. And so if I ever catch myself not wanting to treat myself in the same way that I tell people what's possible, I really question that because, you know, I'm a human too and I want all of those things.
0: I love that. Yeah, you walk the walk and talk the talk, but you have to live and breathe it first. Like you say, you have to, you know, be able to know what that feels like to pass that on to your your students what's been the hardest transition though do you think now that you've kind of broken the the shackles of what happened originally you've now been able to breathe provide some great things for yourself and then what you, most importantly what you said is you've been able to provide this great coaching for people what are some of the things that still sort of hang on there that you find the hardest to get rid of you know the, the legacy stuff
1: yeah oh you know, there's still this feeling that I'm not good enough. It's still there. And I think that comes from the fact that I am always challenging myself and I'm always growing. And when I reach a milestone, I want to reach the next milestone. Um, I don't really get comfortable. I want to do more. And so it's, it's really finding that balance between can I accept where I am now? And can I feel good about where I am now? And can I like myself the way I am now, but also be still working on my personal development, my professional development and growing my company. And so I think the way that shows up sometimes is um, like, for example, I just went to California for two months and I brought my cat and I had a pool and a patio and I did a lot of my coaching sessions outside. And I also went to some networking events and it was just really fun. And it was this combination of work and life and play. And it was incredible, but it took a lot for me to build up my mindset to a place where I felt okay with with doing that because I still had my condo and my car rental and everything to pay for in Toronto, and then also this whole other life in San Diego, and it felt very excessive and it felt very like, oh, what gives you the right to do this? But then you know, I asked myself that and I thought, well, if not me, then who? Like who who else is going to let that be okay? And so it it was challenging but it was really good for me to to kind of push back against those voices and say this is okay even though this might not feel comfortable this is okay
0: and you make some great statement there you know that if not me who it's a wonderful statement you know and and a question as well um you know what's wonderful hearing what you're saying and coming from the same country we very much sort of look at that lifestyle and say you know my goodness la and california is it's what dreams are made of you know to be able to go there and afford to do that lifestyle but good for you. But when did the change occur? Because you had COVID, you just, you were in the sort of timeline map there. COVID really hit everybody really, really, really hard. At what stage did you manage to break free of the COVID shackles? Because that's really what I saw it as. You know, it was a mindset. Yeah, OK, the governments were putting restrictions on us. But, you know, if you were determined enough, you were going to make it happen. When did that sea change happen for you?
1: I think for me, the pandemic was a really great opportunity to reflect on my life and what I wanted and where I was going and the people that were meaningful to me. Um, Because like I said, I just surrounded myself with so many people and I hadn't really thought about who did I want around me. And I think the other thing that happened, as well as kind of getting my own place and becoming more financially independent, I did get into a new relationship um, during the pandemic, which was very strange because... Uh, in the past, I would be very intentional about, you know, if I'm going to start dating, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find this person and that person. And I would curate the whole thing and it would be planned and it would be like, this is what I want. And I was not in that headspace at all this time around. I was very much focused on myself. How can I be okay? How can I slow down? How can I give myself what I need? How can I get used to living independently and, and, you know, um, just a new lifestyle that I was building for myself. So when uh, when Brian came along, I was not looking for, for that. Um, he was not looking for that. And I think it, it was really nice because it just happened very naturally. And it was like, this is an easy kind of extension of the life that I already have. And uh, we lived independently and we have separate finances and, you know, he has his own things that he does. I have my own things that I do. And there wasn't this codependency that i'd always always had in the past there was very an intentional kind of let's take it day by day and see how it goes i think that's been really good for me because it's it's made me realize that i can be myself and i can have time for myself when i can do the things that i want to do but i can also share some of my time with someone who i love who accepts me for who i am and I can express myself. I can cry. I can, whatever I need to do, have a breakdown and he'll still be there. And there's no sense of shame around that. There's no sense of like, I must hide that, or I must keep a certain part of myself to myself. Um, And I think that has just been really refreshing to kind of allow someone into my life in a very relaxed kind of enjoyable way without feeling like I have to control everything, like every single detail.
0: It's very liberating, isn't it? Yeah. Very liberating. It's on your terms, which is wonderful. And very briefly, I mean, wanted to just, uh, and we did allude to it actually when you were answering the question there, that you, you have a chance to travel the world. You're able to do some, you know, coaching where you, wherever you turn up, as long as you have one of these things that we've got on at the moment, Zoom and computer and what have you. What type of people do you think are your ideal kind of um, people that you're looking for, you know, that will really benefit from your services?
1: There's a lot of people who are currently working in a hospital or a clinical setting or in a lab where there's fixed hours, um, they work really, really hard. They don't really have control over what their salary is or when they work or when they have time off. Um, There's very limited growth potential there. um, And it can be very draining and very difficult on your mental health. You just don't have that flexibility that you do as a freelancer. So it's really people who are looking to take back control of their life and to have more freedom and flexibility so a lot of people come to me because they want to spend more time with their family or they have a health condition and they can't work full-time anymore or they're just simply burning out and they want to work less and earn more Um, and they've always had a passion for communications but they didn't know that they could monetize that skill and so You know, you don't necessarily have to have had a business before. In fact, most people have not. Um, But if you have that medical education and you have a desire to communicate things in a way that is useful, then you can monetize that. So it's really kind of that drive to live independently and have control of your schedule and your time and what you do and what you don't do. And then from there, we can figure out all the, the tactical stuff.
0: You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. It's been amazing talking to Sophie Ashton about her journey from the UK to Canada. Now I wanted to ask her a little bit more about family and where she was brought up in the UK. What were some of her earliest memories of the environment that she lived in?
1: Oh, man. (laughs) Um, I grew up in a very small town by the sea. And it was one of those places where there was just one of everything. There's like one hairdressers, one library, one bank. And you really just, everybody knew each other. Um, There were just a few schools. None of them were particularly good. Um, And yeah, it was just a very simple life. Um,
0: Can I put a name to, sorry to interrupt you, can I put a name to the place?
1: Yes, it's called Lower Staffed.
0: Oh yeah, know a lot of stuff. Wow, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's not the hub of the Western world for sure, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's a place to live for sure.
1: Yeah, and I I remember really feeling like I wanted more than that. Um, like I really wanted to do big things, even though I didn't know what those things would be yet, and I felt very smothered and very much placed in a, in a safe little cushioned box that I had to stay in. Um, my parents had very high expectations of me. Um, they had waited a long time to have children. They had a lot of problems with, um, fertility and, um, my mom had many rounds of IVF to be able to have me. And back then that was not very common. She was actually in the news when, um, she got pregnant because it was such a huge, (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. I was going to say that that it usually was in the news, isn't it? In the sort of 80s and 90s, you know, they they said, oh, this lady's managed to get pregnant after sort of years of nothing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So were you the first of many siblings, if you don't mind me asking?
1: I was the first of three. Um, I later discovered that I had another sibling because my dad wasn't actually my dad and I was actually conceived with a sperm donor. So that came up in the last... Six years, uh, crazy story. Um, but I think that kind of really speaks to the experience that I had growing up because I didn't feel like I belonged in my family, and I don't know why I felt that way. But I just felt like I was—that wasn't my family. It was a very strange feeling, and I could not put my finger on it. But then, when I was twenty-five, and I discovered. I have this other sibling and this is not my biological dad. Like everything made sense. And so I think the the feeling of not being accepted or not being who I should be was very justified.
0: I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? There's so much happening at this point now. So let's back the bus up. I want to talk about that in a second, okay? Let's put a name to mum and dad, if you don't mind.
1: Yes. So my mom's called Jackie and my dad is called Paul.
0: And where were they originally from? Were they from the off area originally or did they go back different locations in the past?
1: No, they were from the north of the country um, around the Middlesbrough, Yorkshire area. And they moved down to Suffolk before I was born um, with my dad's work. He worked at a prison.
0: Oh, okay. So you took the words out of my mouth. I was just going to ask, so what did mum do and what did dad do? So dad worked in the prison service, which, you know, back then was a regular job, regular pay, but it's a pretty tough environment. But um, but, mum, what did mum do? Did she sort of stay at home with the kids or did she do different types of jobs?
1: She worked from home as a childminder and she would always have various different children and various different families in and out of the house very, very busy, bustling. Um, I don't remember a time when there weren't other people's kids around. Um, And it was great when I was young because I always had people to play with and I had company. But then as I got older, I was more resentful of that because I had to share everything with them and I didn't get any attention and it was difficult. But I know why she did it because she wanted to be at home with me and my sisters and she wanted to be able to manage the household and bring in more income and kind of, um, make everything work. And, and she did a, an incredible job of that.
0: And to be fair to listeners all around the world, it was a very traditional setup in the UK. There were child minders everywhere. They did it very much part-time and, you know, you went off to work and you basically handed your kids over and you, there was not the regulations that we had probably now. Um, but it was a very common thing, but I get it because that busy household, you really weren't your own entity. Mm. You are part of a number of kids. So let's put names to your, your sister's what were their names?
1: One of my younger sisters is Danielle and the youngest one is Catherine. And the the new one that I recently discovered is named Jess.
0: Wow. So there's four girls then. That's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. How, how, how does that make you feel? So let's talk about the discovery of you suddenly realizing that, um, you know, your birthday is not your birthday that you thought. And, you know, you now got a sister and tell me what all that meant. How did you sort of deal with it?
1: Um, It was funny because I wasn't surprised in a lot of ways. Like I mentioned, I I always knew something was off. And I also knew that if I had confronted my parents about it, they wouldn't have admitted to anything. Um, Even when I discovered my sister Jess um, I called my mom and I asked her like what what does this mean like did did dad have an affair did he have another wife before you does he even know this other child exists because I assumed that it was my dad's daughter and she said no none of that's true none of this makes any sense to me I don't I don't know and so I was left feeling very confused and it wasn't until I put two and two together and I thought, well, hang on, if Jess is donor conceived, then maybe I am too. And that's when my mom finally admitted and she said, Oh, we were always meaning to tell you, but we, we never had a good time and we never knew for sure if it was actually the donor or not. And just all the excuses came out. And, um, honestly, we, we didn't have a great relationship at the time anyway. And so it really was kind of a nail in the coffin that she had lied even when I had found out, um, and just continued to try to keep it from me. And now she, she is adamant that she's always told me, um, the way that I was brought into this world. And I just can't get on board with that, of course. <laughs>
0: It's such a tough thing because we could really go down that rabbit hole because there's all the psychology and the guilt all tied up in that. And we know it's, you know, we know it's difficult for parents, you know, especially from conservative British backgrounds. You know, they don't discuss sex. They don't discuss the, you know, where you came from, really, just as assumed, you know. So I do get it from her and I'm not making excuses. But like you say, you're old enough. You discovered yourself. Mum, why don't you just put the cards on the table? You know, it would just be nice and let's get this out of the way, Mm -hmm. you know. But it's tough. It's tough because you're dealing with so much baggage, so much baggage.
1: Yeah, but I do think that I've seen it as a very positive thing because getting to know Jess has been – incredible um she and i are very similar it's very creepy because <laughs> we had completely different upbringings different parents um but we're the same age um and it's almost oh, wow. like we're twins in a way because our moms were both pregnant at the same time but it's kind of like one of those science experiments where it's like nature versus, versus nurture because we have so much in common like she's a writer as well and uh, we almost went to the same university and she studies psychology, which I thought about doing as well. And she's like an editor of a, a magazine now and she's actually in the healthcare sector. <laughs> it's very, very strange how similar it, we are.
0: It, isn't that incredible biology, isn't it? You know, and uh, you can be the different sides of the world and suddenly it's like my brother, you know, my, my brother's only three years younger than me. But of course we could visit each other every five years and I go into his house and he has three or four of the things that I have. Like we've never even talked about it. You have a choice of thousands of different products in the world. We have exactly the same things. And I Mm. think that's creepy, you know, you Mm. can't explain it, can you? It's something in the DNA. And
1: I think it really gave me permission to be more accepting of who I am because it was kind of like, there's someone else a little bit like me, you know? And so maybe it's okay that I am like this because she's accepted and she's got a good life and- Um, you know, a stable relationship and, and, you know, she's very independent. And so I think it just kind of made me realize that it's okay to, to be who I am. And that no wonder it didn't make sense that I felt different when I was growing up because I was different. And there was that piece of me that was missing and something that I will never probably know.
0: It's so wonderful to hear your story though. I think there's the, you know, like you say, Difficult relationship with mum. You never know what time might do on that. And, you know, as the wounds heal, hopefully something happens and you can communicate. Is dad still around at all? Do you still communicate with dad?
1: Yes. Occasionally. Um, It's kind of one of those things where every once in a while he says, hope you're doing well, Um, you know, and uh, sometimes I write letters to, to my mom. um, But, you know, I've just kind of reached that stage in my life where I, I'm very intentional about who I have around me and if someone makes me feel good about myself or like I can be myself then I will interact with them and if someone makes me feel shame or you know, any, any kind of negativity that keeps coming up, that's a strong sign to me that this person should not be in my life. And so, um, trusting that I know what's best for myself has been really tough. Um, and there's still a lot of guilt associated with that, um, because you love them because they're your family and you want them to be happy. But I think it's that kind of, that reparenting kind of approach that keeps me away because, I'm so much healthier. I'm so much happier. I'm doing so so well compared to how I was when I when I saw them when I spoke to them a lot, and and I do notice a big setback if I see them, in my health, in my well being, and in in every aspect of my life. So you can't deny that that's the case.
0: Ah, great words, really great words. Okay, so let's move the bus forward. You suddenly sort of decided at some stage in your life. I don't know if it was in your kind of fourteen to sixteen year old. Time when you do your O levels or GCSEs, as they call them now, probably changed the name of that now. And you went on to possibly do A levels and go to university. Was that the route that you took, or was it a different route?
1: Yep, I did A levels, um, and then I went to the University of Surrey to study nutrition and dietetics. I wanted to be a dietitian, and it was a government-funded program, so it made it easier for me to afford to to get through all the tuition. There was a lot of clinical practice involved in that i went to four different hospitals throughout the uk to try out all the different aspects of dietetics it was very difficult it was very challenging but i i really enjoyed um just yeah, getting away from my family and just starting to build a life for myself.
0: Well, that's the most important thing. That's when you start to grow, isn't it? And then start to see the horizons and see things that are coming up. So at what stage did you decide that um, I'm going to be a traveller? Because the the Brits are travellers. We go around the world, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Commonwealth countries, you name it. What was the kind of formulation of your ideas of where you wanted to go? What got you motivated to travel first? And then how did you decide on Canada?
1: Yeah. So that actually was not my dream. Um, That was my boyfriend's dream at the time. His name's Sam. Uh, We met at university. He was a software engineer. We actually lived in the same flat. Um, Our rooms were next door to each other. So it was very convenient. And I think that was the only reason why it worked in the beginning because I was studying so hard and uh, yeah, we, we stayed together for a really long time. um, And I think it was in years after we finished university. I said to him, "Oh, didn't you have the opportunity to to do a work placement in the the United States uh, at Surrey?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Why didn't you do that?" And he said, "Well, because of you, I wanted to stay here with you." And I was like, well, "You didn't even talk to me about it. You just made that decision and you just let it go for me." And I think in that moment, I just decided that we have to make this happen. Like you, you never got to go, and I never would have. I don't know how I would have responded to him asking me about it, but I just, I, it just became a dream for both of us at that point. So the original plan was to move to San Francisco in the United States, um, Silicon Valley, he wanted to work for Apple and that was the big, the big dream. So I took it upon myself to try to make that happen. We saved up and, um, went to visit for, uh, I think it was 10 days or so. Um, explored all the different areas uh, went to Apple, went to Google, like just tried to kind of scope it out and we loved it. but when I was looking into the visa requirements I realized that I wouldn't be able to run a business from there. Um, I would have to be sponsored through through Sam. Um, I was considered an un, unskilled worker uh, if I wanted to be self-employed. So I said I just I can't I can't do that. And then the company he was working for at the time was opening an office in Toronto, Canada. And I said, well, why don't we, why don't we go there? Um, You know, I think that they would facilitate the process and then maybe once we're Canadian citizens that will help us become U S citizens. So that was the original uh, story behind that. And then we arrived in Toronto and we fell in love with it.
0: Incredible. Isn't it? And like I said, there's such similarities to the old country, isn't there in many ways many traditions, but you know, it's that bridge of the language, but the rest of it is just North America. It's a discovery, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. What was your first impression when you, you did come here? What was the biggest differences that you noticed in Canada?
1: Oh, just, just how big and shiny everything was and how smart and diverse the, the population was there's so much going on. There's so many people you can meet and things you can get involved in. It's a city, it's a big city. And although I lived in Southampton in the UK for a few years, this was just, I was really starstruck. Um, And I felt like there were people who would accept me the way that I am. And I made friends very quickly. So I think it it was really that. And then of course the seasonal differences because we actually have, all four seasons here, very, very distinct. And I loved that because I really felt like I could make the most of every single day of every single season and different activities, different things you can do. Um, but yeah, I, I love it.
0: And did you try and get a job in the area that you were trained in in the UK or did you just start a clean sheet and go something completely different?
1: I was very naive when I rocked up in Canada. I thought that I could just do what I wanted and I wasn't really prepared for how challenging it would be. I had tried to transition into nutritional therapy when when I was still in the UK and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to have a nutrition consulting business where I helped people with functional medicine, which is not really well, well known. But when I arrived in Canada, I realized that functional medicine is not recognized here. Nutritional therapy is not recognized here. Nobody is really practicing that. The closest thing to it would be a naturopathic doctor, but if I wanted to do that, I'd have to requalify for four years and spend like $150,000 to do all of that. So I really felt quite stuck. And so I tried to do some nutrition consulting, um, but like the market just wasn't there for it. And I didn't know what I was doing. It was my first time having a business. I didn't study business. I just had a lot of passion and enthusiasm. And I thought that was enough. It wasn't. Um, And so it took me a few years to to figure out that medical communications was an option for me and that I didn't need to requalify in order to do that but leading up to that, I did work as a nanny and a housekeeper for um, a year because I just needed to make money. Um, and that was that was a challenging time.
0: It, it can be. And it's funny, it's the same in my business. I've got a small business and obviously I do the broadcasting. Uh, I just said, yeah, I need cash flow. I mean, I need some way of just keeping gas in the car, you know, and thought, you know, I'm going to be... I'm a yellow bus driver, a yellow school bus driver. So that's what I started to do. And I have to say, it got me out of the house. It got mm. me seeing people. And it was a real privilege, and it still is a real privilege for me to be able to transport our future around the countryside, you know. And so for yeah. me, that's worked out okay. But I do understand where you are. You know, you just had to have a stopgap just to get a breather. And so how, how did you spring from that then? What, what was the opportunity that you got that allowed you to move?
1: Yeah, that was that's a good question. So really, I felt like it was a rock bottom time for me when I was working as a nanny because Sam and I had separated, but we'd only been in Canada for a year. We didn't really know many people, didn't have family here, didn't have any savings. He was the breadwinner and I had never been uh, self-employed. I'd never really had a full-time job even. So I had to start from nothing. It was terrifying. Um, And that was the easiest thing for me to just secure full-time work because I had done a lot of childcare, um, helping out my mom over the years. Um, And I'd done that throughout university as well, um, working as a nanny. So I just took that opportunity. Um, What really helped me get out of that was a relationship that I got into at the time with a guy called James, and um, he lived with his mom and his grandparents outside of the city. He had a very chill life. Like he worked as a background actor. He hardly had to do any hours. He just had a very relaxed life. And I had never really met anyone like that before who had complete freedom and control of everything he did and just didn't feel the need to really push himself or get a career or anything like that. And so things are going pretty well. And I just said to him, I'm so miserable. Like I really want to start my own thing, but I can't I can't get out because I have to pay my rent and I'm just stuck here. And he said, well, you can just move in with us for a while. And I just took that and ran with it because, you know, he believed in me and he, he was like, I know you're going to figure it out. And that was all I needed to hear because I knew in myself that I would make it work if someone gave me that opportunity. So I, I uh, told my landlord I'm leaving. I handed him my notice. Um, and that was it. I just kind of lay low for a little while and started building up Prospology, which is what I'm still doing now.
0: So tell us about Prospology. What what was the kind of the inspiration for the name, first of all, because it's such a unique name.
1: It's a combination of Prosperous and Ology. So Prosperous is to be successful and, you know, have a, a fulfilling great life and ology is to learn or the study of. So originally I was doing kind of more general careers coaching and I just wanted to convey that this is a way to learn how to live a better life. Um, so yeah, it started off as just, I want to help people get out of these awful situations that they can find themselves in with employment and figure out who they really are and what really, they're passionate about and what they love and how to monetize that. And, uh, and then decided to specialize in, uh, in medical communications. I was actually starting out as a medical writer at the same time as I started out as a coach. So it was just a a kind of throw yourself in and see what happens situation because I had nothing to lose, like literally nothing. (laughs) I had to make it work.
0: And uh, now that's really interesting. You had nothing to lose. Your back is against the wall. You have no options, so just grit, just hard work, I suppose, isn't it? What What was your, your break though? There's usually something that just gives you that break. What was it?
1: I was applying to a couple of full-time positions in advertising and I managed to land um a a couple of interviews with a big ad agency in Toronto, and they wanted to bring me on as a full-time copywriter, like a senior copywriter. And I was really good at kind of pulling together all my past experiences and conveying that this was exactly right for me, that I would be an asset to them. Um, I had done a little bit of writing before. Um, I had a blog for a little while. And so I was like, I can do this. So they wanted to bring me on full-time, but I knew that I didn't want to work full-time. So what I did was I just went in there for a few weeks as a freelancer, networked like crazy, learned as much as I could, got everybody's emails and then got out. (laughs) And I really used that brand as um, a springboard to start getting more freelance uh, projects because nobody knew me and I didn't have a reputation at all in the field, let alone in Canada. But when I could say that I worked at Click Health People would take me seriously because the acceptance rate for that company is is very low.
0: So, what's that transformed you know your business into now? Is it one of very broad based? You know, you've got your writing side of things. You can blog. You can do even do these video interactions. You know, the podcasts and what have you. Uh, what, what does that look like? What does the layer of the cake look like now? That the therapist of services that you can offer people.
1: Predominantly, I offer one-on-one coaching um, options, and that will give people access to various different trainings depending on what they need. So we cover branding and niching and building a website, producing writing samples for your portfolio, all the various different techniques of medical writing, Compensation, negotiation, pitching, sales, all the aspects involved in setting yourself up as a freelancer and running a business. We also have a community where people can ask questions about anything. And I have myself and a whole team of people who can answer those questions. So I'll still have some one on one time with people. There are some premium options where it's basically like unlimited sessions with me. Obviously, there's very limited availability for that, but most people, they'll have like a check-in uh, session with me about once a month and they'll have access to all these trainings. We'll do workshops, sometimes we'll do events, but it's um, it's very much geared towards what people need and we're constantly developing new trainings all the time. One of my favorite things to do is to interview people in the field about things that they're an expert on experienced freelancers, people who have been able to um, achieve a lot of success in a certain field, people who talk about networking, people who talk about sales and mindset and confidence and entrepreneurship. So it's bringing all those people together to form this community and this vault of of trainings so that, you know, you really have everything that you need to succeed and there's no reason why you wouldn't.
0: Oh, absolutely. Based on what you've just said, they're so comprehensive. Okay. So if somebody wanted to get hold of you, Sophie, what's the best way of reaching out to you?
1: Yes. So I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Sophie Ash, A-S-H. You can also visit prospology.com, P-R-O-S-P-O-L-O-G-Y. And my email is sophie at prospology.com.
0: And I for that she's on LinkedIn a lot because I'm on there a lot as well. And I have to say, it's, I find it a great networking, um, you know, app. It's, there's no doubt about it. There's a different feel to it to other apps, isn't there?
1: I do really love it. I do really feel like I can build a community in there and be myself and be professional. And I don't, I don't, I've never experienced that with any other social platforms. Um, I'm, I think I'm addicted to it in the best way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I love the fact that you admitted your addiction on here, on another track. I will go with that as well, but, uh, thank you so much. But listen, I, I do have one final question, which I always love to ask my interviews is that, um, if you were in Lowestoft again, you got on the number nine bus, I don't know where the number nine bus went in off, but say you were sat beside yourself and you were 16, 18 and you had a life ahead of you what do you think you would tell yourself now with all the knowledge that you've got?
1: Mm, so such a good question. Um, I would tell myself that it's okay that I'm pushing really hard right now, but that I won't always have to do that, that there will become a time when I don't have to do that because I really, I worked extremely hard to get, out of that household and to build a life for myself that gave me the freedom and the independence that I have now. Um, But it was hard for me to draw the line and say, that's enough. You've done it. You've succeeded at that. There is no need to suffer or struggle anymore. So I, I would want myself to know that that was okay. There's no shame in that because that's what I had to do to get to where I am but that it won't always be like
0: that. Always hope for the future, isn't there?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Listen, it's been an incredible journey. I'm so glad that we hitched up on Lincoln and uh, I knew there was a great story behind the face. And uh, like I say, when I saw your face from four years ago, I thought, God, Sophie looks so familiar. There was something so familiar about you, not in in a really good way. And I just thought, there's a story, you know, and uh, it's amazing how you transformed yourself and well done you and... I wish you the best of success from strength to strength. Just keep going forward. That's all we can do, isn't it?
1: Thank you so much. And we'll be seeing each other's progress on LinkedIn every day, I'm sure.
0: I'm sure we are. Don't compare me too much at the moment. I'm feeling still a bit sorry for myself, but but no, joking apart, no, it would be great to see how we're both getting on. And maybe, I think it would be lovely to see where you are in 12 months' time and and see what that looks like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't even know myself. I'd love to know.
0: (laughs) That's that's the rich tapestry of life. We just don't know what's around that corner, but just go for it. Live dangerously. Don't live recklessly, but live dangerously. That's what I say.
1: Mm, Yes, exactly. Life is there to be lived.
0: Absolutely. Sophie Ash, I want to say thank you very much. Take care of yourself and thanks for your time today. Thank you. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Sophie Ash from Prospology. Guiding you to more freedom, flexibility, and financial independence through her medical writing and coaching program. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On and On the Track with Me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a Brick Cam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated, keeping us safe on the roads of North America.